0: Welcome to The Buzz, a Bank Automation News podcast. I'm Associate Editor, Elijah Poindexter. Recently, I spoke with David Matei, strategic advisor at research firm ITA Navarica. We discussed how exactly fraudsters are using automations to scale skyrocketing fraud attacks, along with how banks can best leverage automation to protect themselves.
1: I'm expecting things to get worse before they get better here in the United States. Uh, part of the reason there is because last year in the European Union, they introduced something called Strong Consumer Authentication, or SCA, and it's just a, it was a program that's put in place in order to make e-commerce transactions more secure. And so as the implementation of SCA over in the European Union improves and expands, it's going to be harder for fraudsters to commit fraud over there. Uh, but stopping fraud sometimes is like just squeezing a balloon. You don't actually reduce your losses, you just force them someplace else. And that's where I see the U.S. becoming more of a target, because e-commerce fraud is easier to perform here. And so, you know, in the mid-2010s, when countries were deploying the EMV chip cards that we all use now in store for transactions, as one country deployed chip cards, what we saw was that fraud migrated to other non-chip countries, and the U.S. being one of the last industrial countries to actually deploy chip cards. And so the same thing I see happening here, there are other countries across the world, not just in the EU, that are getting tougher on e-commerce fraud losses. Uh, So I am uh, expecting and waiting that at some point in time, I believe the problem is gonna get big enough here that somebody in a position of authority, whether it be the card brands or government or some other kind of body, uh, is gonna come out with some sort of uh, announcement it's either going to be a carrot to incent or a stick to penalize so the carrot or stick approach in order to go off and fight cmp fraud the tools are out there uh but we're having we have reluctancy here in the us in order to go off and deploy some of those tools so you know we're expecting
0: this to get worse before it gets better
1: uh, you know i think Pretty
0: much every analyst and expert in the, in this sort of field would probably, you know, they'd unfortunately have to agree with that. For a bank or an FI, uh, you know, what does an environment where a bank, you know, and and of course, I'll preface this by saying that you, you, you want to do business and operate and bank in a financial environment that has no fraud, of course, but we just don't live in that world, as as everybody well knows. Uh, again, with these skyrocketing losses and skyrocketing incidences of fraud. So, when a bank says, "Okay, we as an institution or an organization, we have a firm grasp on the sort of fraud and scam situation, both internally and for our clients," uh, what does that look like? If that is even something that's achievable, you know, is there are there banks out there that you've seen that you know can say with some sort of confidence that we, at this current moment in time, we have a pretty good grasp on the fraud situation as it applies to us and our customers?
1: You know, there's different levels of sophistication at banks, just because we got over 10,000 of them here in the United States. Uh, But I would say that I can stop all fraud all the time, but I'm going to shut down your business as well. So I don't think many banks are interested in that part of it. Uh, But then if you want to actually drive your losses to zero uh, and do it effectively, Uh, The cost to go off and do that are probably prohibitive for most financial institutions here in this country. And so it comes back down to the annual operating budget that every FI puts together. And in that operating budget, there is a line item for fraud write-offs, fraud loss write-offs. And when those losses that you start experiencing exceed whatever you had budgeted, that's when serious conversations start within the bank or the credit union. So the question is, is, you know, why are those losses increasing? Is it because I got the wrong people who are managing fraud? Do I have outdated tools that are no longer effective? Is there a rising sea of fraud across the industry and everybody's being hit by this? Uh, Or do I have unrealistic expectations of what my fraud losses ought to look like and I just have underestimated them? So whatever the reason may be, you know, those conversations start getting had. And then what happens is that the people who are responsible for trying to mitigate those fraud losses, all of a sudden, their business cases for fraud investments get dusted off and the ROI on those business cases start looking a lot better than what they had in the past. And so, you know, banks definitely want to be able to control it. They're willing to take a certain amount. uh, But it's all kind of the, you know, cost benefit analysis that they're doing in terms of, You know, how much do I want to spend and what is that incremental dollar in spend going to do in terms of reducing my fraud losses I have to write off?
0: You know, and and as a note on top of that, you know, speaking to other experts and hearing other experts, you know, in the space speak about this. It's not just an industry problem as it, it doesn't all relate to just what fraudsters are doing. As you say, you know, it's perfectly within the power of a bank or financial institution to stop the fraud. But the question becomes sort of, you know, walking on this tightrope between a lack of stringency, which of course will just invite fraud, and too much stringency, which kind of overextends the use case and becomes, you know, it, it, it inhibits the sort of open and embedded sense of banking that a lot of these digital banks and and, and banks with really advanced uh, technological sort of frameworks are trying to, trying to uh, promote. Because, you know, I don't need to tell you this, is that this tightrope is so thin and trying to strike that balance is so difficult, you know, because, again, where do you decide between this is too much stringency, we need to dial back a little bit, or we dial back a little bit too much, and then we have a really big problem on our hands. So it's really difficult
1: yeah it's just like uh you know the the group that's being chased by the bear you don't need to be the fastest you just can't be the slowest and so you just want to make sure that you have at least enough in place that there's enough uh, uh vinegar in the milk in order to uh dissuade that fraudster from attacking you and going to find some easier target
0: so you know how are fraudsters how are they scaling these attacks you know is there an automation angle to this how are they accomplishing so much you know uh, so uh, so much efficiency in their fraud attacks with the scale and the speed and the size that they've been sort of
1: doing it with over the past couple of years yeah fraudsters are really good at automation and technology and what that allows them to do is commit fraud at scale Uh, bots are one of the significant ways that's happening today Uh, so bots is just a a automated program where you can do large-scale fraud uh, the other way that they're attacking is via a combination of both automation and human fraud farms. Uh, human fraud farms are people that are hired by the fraudsters to step in uh, in an automated login process and respond when there's a need for some sort of manual input. You know, it could be, uh, you know, I have to click on the I'm not a bot on the login page. Uh, it could be I got to solve a a puzzle. Uh, are other kind of similar things that just cannot be automated. And so, you know, whether, whether if they're not committing a, a fraud completely and through an automated way, uh, and if they need humans in order to be able to help through pieces of it, you know, the human hard fraud forums are another way to go off and do that. So it, they're really good at both attacking at scale. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing out there is scams, as I mentioned before. And, you know, it could be through an email or a text message, sometimes a phone call, but especially when you look at email and text messaging, you know, you can send out millions of these things and you don't need a high percentage of people to fall for them. You know, a very small percentage of people falling for a scam email or a scam text message that you click on the link and, you know, you're providing your credentials or what the case may be. That's all the fraudster needs because that small percentage still adds up to a lot of potential in terms of stolen funds. You
0: know, maybe backtracking a little bit to the bot part, because I find that extremely interesting. And, and it's ironic because fraud, you know, the majority of this fraud is being Carried through digital channels, but we only think about the human aspect. You know, it's always the hunched over figure with the computer and the hoodie on and you can't see his eyes, but we forget about the fact that these, it isn't always a human enterprise. And so maybe you could, you know, if you can, you can give an example of what, like a bot in a fraud situation, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, yeah, easily take a look at some of the very popular data breaches over the past five years, where instead of stealing payment credentials they've been more like like credit card numbers, debit card numbers, things like that. Uh, Instead of stealing that, uh, they have been stealing username and passwords that are on file at these various um, uh, companies where they've been able to breach. So what you can do then is you can create a bot that uh, I got an Excel document and it's got username in one column, password in another column. I can create a bot to try to log in to some popular website and see if that username password pair is still valid or not and it, it, you could do it against you know pick a website any kind of e-commerce company or maybe even a bank but you know if you're doing that scale and if you get a good hit and you know this username password pair is still valid uh, well the, the other problem that we have here in this country is that <laughs> consumers we don't like to have different passwords for different you know, websites uh, so we tend to reuse that same password So if I know this username, password works on website A, it may work at bank B or credit union C. And so that way, the bot is doing all the hard work of trying to do the uh, login and see if it gets uh, in or it gets rejected. And every time there's a good hit, well, then it just wretches the fact that this is a good pair. And they can then use that information to go in and commit some manual attacks. You know, for example, you know, use those credentials to log into your online banking account and borrowing funds to yourself.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, So on the bank side of things, uh, and that's super interesting, uh, you know, on the bank side of things, of course, the easiest solution, I think, would be, you know, from what I've heard for a bank to to sort of mitigate these threats is simply to outsource to a some type of fintech or vendor or or some type of entity that can kind of do the fraud detection and mitigation for you and whether that's white labeled or not that's another conversation but you know is there anything first off I think a first you know a good first part of this question is you, you know is there even a is there a use case for banks in terms of like you know would it make a difference if a bank was to kind of tamp down into, uh, you know, sort of providing their own internal uh, fraud detection system and fraud mitigation system? Or is that something that it's a little bit more efficient and economical for a bank to go outside? And then the second part of that question is, you know, how specifically can banks use automation, you know, to reduce risk, you know, to manage risk and manage these fraud threats, uh, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, the days of banks being able to build their own solutions in-house in order to be able to address some of these problems are long gone, Uh, mainly because, one, you know, financial institutions just don't have the IT bandwidth any longer in order to go off and do that. And two, if they're building solutions in-house, then you have the issue of maintaining them and keeping them current over time, which is another uh, huge cost issue. So, Commercial solutions are really the way to go, and you can really take commercial solutions and break them into two components. One we call passive authentication tools and the other one being active authentication tools. And passive tools are tools that run in the background, and they kind of monitor activity. No user input is required at all for these, which is the beauty of them, because you can look for fraud signals without the user having to take any kind of action. Things like, you know, device fingerprinting, uh, behavior biometrics, or identity verification services, you know, trying to verify whether this is a valid email address or a phone number or things on those lines. You know, even the rise in artificial intelligence and machine learning, where you can actually do that as well. So these are all great tools that just run in the background, look for fraud signals, and then if they detect something, they raise the red flag, and then you can go off and take some additional action as necessary. When that red flag does go up then you can switch to what we call active authentication tools and this is where you may need to interact with the consumer and ask the consumer to do something uh, you could ask them to take a selfie or maybe scan their driver's license and selfie and send them both in for you to go off and check you may be sending them some type of one-time passcode and not the not the simple ones that you send through uh sms text message through public channels but some type of private otp which is much much more secure than what's being done uh, through otp sent through the uh, carriers right now Uh, but those are tools that you can use in order to require the user to take some kind of action and at least you know that you're interacting with the good person at that particular point in time Uh, but the thing about it is that there is no silver bullet when it comes to this you really need to have a multi-layered approach to mitigating fraud Uh, just because, you know, there's no one tool that's going to take care of it all all for you all the time.
0: You know, you say there's no silver bullet approach. Uh, Were there any approaches or technologies you know of that maybe are considered a little bit unorthodox or maybe a little bit underrepresented in the standard sort of anti-fraud or risk management build, uh, if that makes any sense?
1: You know, there's some newer technologies that are coming out that have not really gotten a lot of widespread adoption within the banking industry here in the us uh so some of the things like you know passwordless uh, authentication methods out there you know there are there are technologies in order to really kind of eliminate the whole username password uh, fiasco that we have going on in this country uh, but i mean The financial services industry here in the U.S. has been very slow to go off and adopt those kind of solutions because they're just a little bit afraid that it does take some action on the part of the user. And, you you know, everyone's standing around the pool and they're all afraid to be the first one to jump into it. And so some of those technologies are out there to provide a more secure experience. It does require the user doing something different. And, you know, banks and credit unions in general are a little bit leery of, you know, is that going to cause consternation on the part of my user. You know, are they going to look at that negatively and maybe take their business someplace else? You know, are they going to think if it's too intrusive uh, and too cumbersome to go off and do? And I think also, I think banks and credit unions here in the US just don't give the US consumer enough benefit of the doubt of being smarter than what they think they are. Uh, I I think people have the ability to go off and adopt this. I mean, look at it, you know, we all figured out how to use a chip card (laughs) eventually. Uh, So, you know, I I think there's ways that there's some technologies out there that are viable, uh, but we just need to get overcome our fears of actually going off and deploying them.
0: You know, closing out the conversation here, uh, obviously, you know, the days of of saying, you know, what's your prediction for 2022 are long gone. We're in the midst of 2022, we're right in the middle of it. So, you know, looking beyond 22, 2022 and beyond to, you know, these projected, you know, fraud losses and, 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 you know, the fact that it probably will get worse before it gets better. Where are in your mind, the greatest vulnerabilities uh, for both banks and their consumers? And then maybe you can give some best practices uh, to fix these or remedy these.
1: Yeah, we never know where the next vulnerability is gonna sit. You know, something is going to come down the pike. I can guarantee you that much right now. What it is, is really hard to predict. Uh, But the biggest vulnerability in general is the fact that frosters, they are nimble. Uh, They have speed and can pivot quickly. Uh, and they're very sophisticated. Counter that to banks and credit unions that tend to be slow to react and adjust. That is the biggest vulnerability that we have: is that banks and credit unions need to become as nimble and as fast as what the fraudsters are, in order to be able to stay ahead. Of, or else, you're always playing catch up. In that case, you know you're always on the defensive. So, how do you get around that? Well, there's a couple ways I think you can do it. One is collaboration. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have over 10,000 financial institutions here in the U.S. You know, other countries, you're talking about maybe a few hundred. Heck, you know, Canada—they only have five. Uh, the problem with such an extensive number of FIs in this country is that a fraudster could hit one bank, and if the controls get uh, strict enough, and it's hard to commit fraud there, you know, I got another 9,999 I can go off and hit, and so. If the, if the banks in this country were to actually come together and share the information that they have uh, in order to be able to identify some of these bad actors, I think we can do a great job of being able to mitigate the impact. You know, the Frosters know this is one of our weaknesses, the fact that we don't share data, that we don't collaborate, uh, but, uh, you know, they're, they're using it to their advantage and, and to our disadvantage. So that was one way. Uh, and the other issue that we see out there is even between merchants and banks, you know, we talked about e-commerce fraud a little bit earlier. Merchants have some great information for being able to detect fraud, uh, but the banks don't see it. And likewise, the banks have some great information for detecting fraud that the merchants don't see. So if those two groups could come together and figure a way to be able to share data, uh, another great opportunity being be able to mitigate this. Uh, And the last thing I would say is what we call orchestration. Uh, Orchestration is when you have a single interface into a, for example, a vendor solution, a multi-pronged vendor solution. And, you know, it's kind of like the cafeteria plan. I can select a device fingerprinting solution today and all tomorrow I can add behavioral biometrics if I want to. And then down the road, I can add a third or fourth or fifth tool if I want to. Uh, But orchestration allows banks to achieve some of that nimbleness that we talked about before uh, in order to be able to be much better at reacting to what a fraudster does and even maybe putting defenses in place proactively uh, in order to always continue to be on their heels.
0: You've been listening to The Buzz, a Bank Automation News podcast. Thank you for your time and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Please don't hesitate to rate this podcast on your podcast platform.